You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to humanitarians to students, I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. This is part two of our first episode on refugees and asylum seekers. Today I'm joined with Gillian Triggs, Senior Medical Officers on Nauru, and that is pleading with the government to allow proper medical care to be given to these people, uh, and the government refusing. We will be exploring the refugee question in and just outside of Australia, as well as her experience working with the Australian government on immigration policy. I just wanted to move forward onto the Medivac bill. I'm sure you've spoken about it a lot. Do you see this as a positive step forward? I think a particularly egregious aspect of the Australian policy, along with many, many egregious aspects, but one that was particularly egregious was the absolute refusal of the government to allow uh, people who the medical, senior medical officers on Nauru and Manners pleading with the government to allow proper medical care to be given to these people uh, and the government refusing it, Mm -hmm. including children. Um, I think that was beyond the pale, beyond anything that one could ever have imagined Australia would do. So it was interesting that in the end, a majority of parliamentarians, uh, a group of obviously the Greens, the Independents, the Labour Party, uh, managed to pull the numbers together to force that Medivac bill through. And that has had a positive impact. But now, of course, the government's introduced legislation to repeal the Medivac. So, I mean, I find the the pointlessness of all of this is almost beyond belief. Even under the, under the Medivac Act, the minister still could have the last word on the basis of national security. But it was almost, again, hubris and ego that he wouldn't allow, that Scott Morrison would not allow a group of, of high-caliber medical practitioners to make a decision contrary to his own views. Even that legislation allows him to overturn it if he decides it's in the national interest. So it was not as though these medical officers could overrule the Prime Minister if the Prime Minister chose to to do it. So why would you bother wanting to repeal the, the, the legislation? There's no really good reason for doing it. But the question now is going to be, because he has the numbers apparently in the lower house, he can pass it. But whether it get whether it will pass the Senate remains to be seen. And here we find the the remarkable Jackie Lambie sitting in the middle holding that key vote, one person. Whether she will support the maintenance and you know refuse to allow the repeal of the Medivac Act remains to be seen. I don't think she's declared her hand on that one at the moment. Um, but, but it's a tragedy that our political situation has reached this stage. And if uh, Australians care about or don't care about, about the humanitarian aspect, they should at least be demanding that the government explain why it's spending so many billions of dollars on this. Um, it just can't be justified, and it's and it's cruel and inhumane. Do you think the repeal is mostly for the look of actually getting it through than what it means? Yes, I think I think exactly. It's ego. It's well, we've won the election. Now we're going to turn the clock back. It's a pointless, rather spiteful thing to do. No real benefit. It's about the politics. We keep coming back to these extraordinary political uh, days when we have governments espousing policies that no no Australian could have imagined we would embark upon even even 10 years ago. Do you think the bill would actually get through? I think she will exercise her vote to ensure the Medivac Act remains in force. I think she will, but I may be wrong. We hope. We hope. Mm. That, that's my hope. 
Um, yeah. uh, certainly it's my hope yeah. whether it's whether it's a realistic expectation I really don't know but I think she acted in a humane way on other issues relating to asylum seekers and refugees and I think maybe she will again this time mm-hmm. she seems to be the decider on a few that's right. few debates mm-hmm. at the moment mm-hmm. you don't think the government will do much with the remainder of the refugees on offshore detention centers I think that they are so concreted into position. They painted themselves into such a corner that they feel they would lose a lot of face. Now, you might, if you go back to the days of John Howard and Nauru, Mark One, he just quietly moved them all back on some medical or other reason by bit by bit. I think there was a rather poignant picture of a one man and a cat left on, on Nauru and ultimately <laughs> he was brought back. I don't know what happened to the cat. But um, but he did it quietly. He knew that the public had pretty much had enough of Nauru, of Nauru and that was that was the first time around. This time around, the, the sensible thing now, given that um, the, the coalition has won an election, and not by much, but it's won it, uh, it could just do what Howard did, quietly bring them back, mop up the mess recover the funds and get on with their lives. But they're not doing that. And and that that's where I just don't know what's going to happen. And in my the job that I'll be taking up in a couple of weeks, clearly we'll we'll be arguing with them to find a safe alternative for the remainder. Um, and that may very well be New Zealand or it may be they go to Canada, maybe they go to other parts of Asia. I, I really don't know. But, but but a pathway has to be found for those people. They cannot be left to, to rot on those islands any longer. What are your hopes for your new position? I'm very much hoping that I can be effective in trying to find safe passage for this. You know, seven, it's, the dimension, of course, is totally different. We're not talking about hundreds or thousands. We're talking about 72 million who are displaced or refugees. Somebody introduced me the other day and said, um, Gillian, you've managed to irritate one government. Now you're going to the UN and irritate 193 governments. <laughs> now, I sincerely hope I don't do that. Uh, what I'm hoping I can do, do is... Yeah, doesn't that mark that you've done a good job? If well, but that's what I, perhaps they, they are hoping in the, in, in the UN. I don't, I don't really know. But I think that my job will be essentially legal and diplomatic to try to work with government and government officials to try to find them. The word they use all the time is protection, protect these people and to give them a safe passage back home, which is where almost all refugees, displaced people want, want to be, to their villages and their towns and their property and rebuild their lives. Human capacity for doing that is remarkable and they can do it. But you have to have sta- a safe environment. And if the, if the Rohingya are going to be subject to more burning of villages and rape and murder, uh, extermination policies supported appears by the government, then you can't send them back. So there are a million people in one of the poorest countries in the world, Bangladesh, and, and something has to be done for these people. So I'm optimistic that some you know good work can be done. But but as we speak, the numbers of people displaced simply keeps on rising. We've got civil war in the Yemen, continuing civil war in Mali. Um, the horrors of, of war uh, and displacement in Syria continues and, of course, in Libya now, and, uh, mounting again. A large number of, of migrants moving across the Mediterranean, coming across from Eastern Europe. The movement of people on the planet is extraordinary. And, uh, I don't imagine that the numbers are going to decline. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to find global solutions to this. And one of the objectives of my job is to try to encourage uh, more countries to share the burden. I know the burden's a nasty word because 
people seeking protection shouldn't be seen as a burden, but yeah. but we need to share responsibilities at least. Uh, because at the moment, the poorest countries in the world are shouldering by far the biggest burden, and we need to find a way to do that. I have some optimism. You might know that... Um, 193 countries have, in fact, signed a global compact for refugees and another global compact on uh, on migration. And one of the first of the big meetings is being held in December, where states are making their commitments to uh, positive action to assist. And I think there's a lot of goodwill, and that has to be translated into action. And hopefully the global compact in December will be an important means of doing that. So we have to encourage all governments to, to come to the party in a way. Has there been many of those global compacts before and have they been successful? That's a terrific question. And the idea of a global compact is relatively new language and it's mm-hmm. really been used for uh, in the area of business and human rights, the global compact in that area. And it's been relatively successful because it's voluntary and it's not using the tools of full-on treaty obligation. And it may be that, that the business community and some governments much prefer that voluntary commitments Uh, which may or may not be met, but don't raise full-on legal commitments, may be a more successful way forward. Uh, The Global Compact on Business and Human Rights has been quite successful. So I think think that that's one of the underlying motives for using the same language for migration and refugees, Mm -hmm. the hope that voluntary commitments will be more effective than than the sort of ramming down the throats of government, legal obligations to do various things. They Mm -hmm. don't take kindly to it, even, even if... They ought to. Uh, they're, they're not going to. And so you've got to work in a, in a realistic political environment to persuade governments to accept a higher burden, to provide safe passage, but above all, to provide protection to these, these people that need it. In some senses, it's a bit of a competition who can take the least or who can kind of satisfy that their mm. borders are the strongest. Mm. So is there a need through these compacts to shift that idea to like who can take the most and who can... Provide the best. Well, it would be nice to have competition and yeah. take the most. I think that that's highly unlikely. I mean, one of the difficulties um, is that the world at the moment is moving towards right-wing populist nationalist governments where questions of borders, migration control has conflated or merged with the problem of displaced people and refugees and asylum seekers. They're two completely different things. Um, but they're merged in people's minds politically and in a, a nationalist populist governments, there's been this sort of jingoistic retraction, quite contrary to the whole development of the world since the Second World War when we've been looking at multilateralism, multilateral trade agreements we now have with the Trump position, a, a move away from multilateralism. Um, possibly Britain will go in the same direction. You know, they crash out, (laughs) which is looking increasingly likely. Um, The the tragedy is that the world had moved towards a much more global approach to problem solving, but that the Trumpism that spread to other countries, Brazil, Hungary, parts of of Turkey, other parts of the world, including Australia, um, increasingly concerned about national borders and migration and stopping migration. Um, And that spread across to... Uh, to to refugees and asylum seekers. So um, I I think the optimistic hope is that 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 move can be stopped or at least moderated so that we go back to a more global understanding that we can't solve problems of global climate change, of global poverty, inequality, 
and uh, and and violence and persecution, which has led to that those fleeing and are looking for protection. We can't solve those problems unless we do it together. That's the key practical fact. Uh, until we have governments that are willing to recognise that, we, we really can't make progress. And the da- that's why it's so dangerous at the moment when we've got governments moving towards this more jingoistic protection of nationalism and, border, and talking about border security. Um, it's highly political. It's the politics of fear. It's often inaccurate. I mean, for example, if we go back to Australia, uh, we've had many, many more people arriving illegally by plane um, really? and then overstaying visas. That, but that's not had any traction politically. And also in the media as well. That's right. I, I think like, the media's yeah. badly let let uh, let these people down. Um, they've really not been interested in, in uh, really analysing the depth of the problem, getting the facts right. They've really very much gone along with the government and, of course, with a pretty passive opposition. That's been another element of the problem, that the issue of asylum seekers and refugees has been a wedge issue between the, the coalition and Labour, and Labour's just not had the political courage to stand up against the coalition. We are always looking for new riders. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. Yeah, because as well, I think we always talk about offshore processing mm. and there's never really been a focus on the onshore systems no. ever. No. And oh, I, because we don't much care about it. Yeah. We, uh, employers want people for work. The, the um, fresh food industry wants people to pick... Uh, the food and the vegetables and the and, and the fruit. Um, nobody's really complained terribly much about it. They don't really mind, uh, which has got its own problems. So the Australian public has not really been concerned about it. What they have been concerned about is the idea of so-called illegal migration through people smugglers and ship and boats. That's what they've objected and to. And like the danger. And um, the danger, yeah. the fact that, you know, horrible numbers of people have died. And creating that idea of the other and exactly. they're over there and if they come here. That's right. Yeah. And, and graphic pictures of, of um, these fragile boats breaking up against the rocks on Christmas Island and, and people and children drowning. I mean, the Australians quite rightly have said that is an, an appalling, horrible situation and we don't want it. But the problem is that, that, that that's been used by the government to create fear. And also an element of Islamophobia and and the sense that these people are terrorists in any event. Coming illegally and they're paying people smugglers. And if they can pay people smugglers, they're not not refugees because they're really just economic migrants. That's the language. It's deeply misleading and prejudiced and wrong. But I don't think the media has really done a very good job at fighting back against that. Because if we think about the Tamil case at the moment, Mm -hmm. the main cause of not using the ministerial discretion is that idea and that fear, that creation of we're just going to let everyone else know that they can come here now. But you see, it's a lie in the sense that we've just had uh, documented evidence of 52 other people uh, uh, that the minister has allowed his discretion for. Now, that hasn't led to an armada of influx of boats. I was going to ask. What's the result of the other Exactly. And then, I mean, to be, some people have been quite right in pointing out that the minister could lift the bar and exercise his discretion for an au pair girl. So far as I'm aware, we haven't been swamped with au pair girls. (laughs) What is is going on? Um, We know that the government has exercised discretion when it suited them for all sorts of purposes. Why would you not exercise it for a family of this kind that have endeared themselves to the people of, uh, of um, a wonderful community. And I've much enjoyed seeing uh, women of a certain age who've probably never been in front of the media before, you know, on, on the ABC, uh, in front of the television cameras, saying, you know, we love these people. They, our children are with them in, at schools and kindergarten. Where the, the father is working in the local abattoir. We know them in the community. They're good, honest, 
people of good faith. We want you to exercise your discretion in their favour. We know that they're not refugees. Uh, and I don't think one can gainsay that. The minister uses discretion constantly, but uses it for their own political purposes and sometimes to support friends who want au pair girls. It's absolutely outrageous. They're now being deported, right? They're going back to... Well, Shrine they've got... Con. I think they, this amazing judge... Um, Mordecai Bromberg of the federal court. I shouldn't mention his name because judges don't really like him. Their name's being mentioned in public. But nonetheless, he, a remarkable judge, along with one, one or two others. He's found a basis for giving an injunction that will... I think it's been extended a second time for at least another okay. couple of weeks. Whether they can achieve anything in the end, I very much doubt it because we've had three decisions all the way up to the high court to say... They're not refugees. So if they're not, there's only one outcome. The minister must exercise a discretion for a humanitarian visa uh, or, or, or a visa for a mother. Why not say, oh, you know, it'd be, be ridiculous, I suppose. But why not say, well, the people of this community want you, so you can stay in Australia, but you can only live there. <laughs> you can't move anywhere else for the next 10 years. What's worse? <laughs> well, there could be some face-saving yeah. way to do it. I mean, I don't think it's, a, it's the right outcome, but at least it will keep them in Australia. What happens to representative government if they're not actually listening to the community exactly. backing? And like in the media, everyone is supporting this family. That's right. And we even have right-wing yeah. commentators arguing for it, uh, saying, you know, we can be a compassionate country and you do make exceptions in some cases. It doesn't mean the sky is going to fall in. It certainly doesn't mean we're going to have tens of thousands of, of asylum seekers. Right. And the point that I make and, and need to keep making is the reason we've stopped the boats is we're spending billions of dollars on Coast Guard shipping to stop the boats. We're stopping it with military action, effectively. Yeah. I don't believe a shot is being fired, but nonetheless, we have an armada. We have a, a steel cordon around the northwestern part of Australia, and that is stopping asylum seeker boats getting through. I don't like that policy. I'd much rather a collaborative policy with Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam and Sri Lanka. Um, but at least let's be honest about what's stopping the people smugglers. It's that. Holding children and families on Nauru or taking such, such a harsh policy for the Tamil family it is not stopping people smugglers. It's rubbish. And I'm told over and over again that the people who might want to use people smugglers haven't the slightest idea about the complexities of Australian law and where people are held and for how long and why. All they know is that they want to come to a peaceful country like Australia and get on with their lives. And uh, I don't blame them for that. We have to have something of an orderly process. I don't, I don't think I can argue against that at all. We have to deal with the facts. And the facts are that we've got about 20,000 people in Australia, most of whose claims have never been assessed, uh, who are waiting for some kind of assessment. And in many cases with this internal uh, fast track process, theoretically, not subject to proper review, uh, is going to mean that a lot of them will never, ever get even a temporary protection visa. At best, these people can only get temporary protection visas, and most won't even get that. So the, the case of the Tamil family will be replicated over and over and over again. Um, and that's, that is a problem. And that's why I think the government's got to face the reality of that problem rather than um, pretend it isn't there. This Tamil family problem is going to be replicated because there are so many, there are thousands of families in Australia who have been here for years, uh, who eventually... Uh, will be on that list for deportation. What would be the saviour policy? I think a leader with vision and compassion, with confidence, could say, this is a reality on the ground. It wasn't of our making. You can always blame another government. And they Not do. of our making, and they do. But they, you can blame the Labour government, just say it was all Kevin Rudd's fault, whatever you want to say. Um, but and up to a point, it's true. And say, we're now going to lead on this issue. We've got to deal with this the expense is outrageous, the inhumanity is outrageous. We will now have a new process. We will process those that are in the country for a start. Most of them will probably be refugees. 
but let's say 15 or 20% won't. Those that are refugees can move through a process, let's say five years, to become full Australian citizens. So you could deal with that group. The group that aren't refugees, then it's not inappropriate for them to be returned home. But the tragedy is that most of those will fall into the Tamil family category. In other words, they're not going to be refugees, but they've settled into their communities. I think the answer there is to say, we've passed the point of no return. They have to stay with us. Uh, And if they behave appropriately for the next five years, they too can apply for citizenship. I think we've just got to mop the problem up um, and get on with it. Um, We could, if I'm not sure I really think this is a great idea, but one way will be to say all those that we give that right to must live in rural areas and contribute to the rural development of rural communities. I mean, it's wrong to force people to live in particular environments, but it may be that that would be politically more palatable. Um, But I think we've simply got to recognise the reality that we can't send these people home and they're not going to be going home. So let's get on with it. Let's deal with it, get it off the political agenda and, and, and get back to dealing with some of the issues Australia needs to deal with politically uh, rather than wasting so much money and political capital on something that is going to be a running sore for the next 10 or 20 years because we've got so many people whose positions are not yet clarified. Final question. Do you have optimism for Australia's future policies with refugees? I am ultimately optimistic because I think the basic ingredients of Australia are... Um, are for compassion and equality. Um, I think most Australians will get there. But I think we've had very poor political leadership. And my, I don't believe we'll have much change until we have leaders that can be more visionary, more principled, and be willing to take a stand on these questions. Uh, at the moment, we've had political leaders who are really just scrambling with each other for political power. They're not coming from a principled position of integrity. I know the Australian people know that. Um, so I think I am waiting like the Messiah for, uh, <laughs> for leaders. Yeah. And I want to see younger Australians start to step up to the political mark. And uh, instead of we've got too many old white men in <laughs> politics, uh, there are more women coming in now. And I think that's got to be a good thing. Some optimism lies with the number of women coming into politics. Uh, because I, I personally think women are much easier to work with to reach a compromise. Um, and I think they will. I don't think women are going to act in quite the way that these um, men have acted. Now, I may be wrong. I do believe that we'll get past this. We're at a dark stage in Australian life. I don't think we've ever been such a mean, uh, bitter country, so lacking in generosity and compassion ever in our history. I don't think we've ever been like this. Although I have to be honest in saying we had a white Australia policy. But but I think those were different times. But, but I think we've always had a basically open approach to migration. We've always seen ourselves, we're a migrant country and we're a very young country, very, mm-hmm. very young. And uh, I think we've taken a wrong turn. But I'm optimistic that we will get past this, but it's not going to be in the short term. Mm. I think we've got many, many years to go of this. But that doesn't mean that you have to give up. I mean, I felt after the last election, and I'm not political, I don't frankly care who's in political power. Mm. I'm much more concerned with outcomes. What are we achieving and what are we doing? What's our vision and what are our values? And I don't think either political party is really worthy of of, uh, the name Australia for the moment. But I do believe that we will eventually. My feeling is we've all got to get back to work. We've got through our education, through our young people, through promoting the values of of a compassionate and humane society and hopefully ultimately with a charter, but we won't get that for a number of years. But I do think that if we get a new generation coming through, We've got some optimism for the future, and I think more women in senior positions will help. (laughs) Thank you for your 
words of wisdom. I'm sure all of our listeners enjoy it thoroughly. So thank you so much for your time. It's a great really pleasure to talk it. to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.